You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 33. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to think for yourself with Dr. Vikram Mansharamani. We'll be talking about why we outsource our thinking, why when we're planning for success, we should focus on failure, as well as ethics, empathy, and a chance meeting with Bob Woodward, and much, much more. In times of great change, we need great leaders, those willing to step up, to take responsibility, to create a vision and inspire others to join them in fulfilling that vision. A key part of that is having conversations with yourself and those you lead. That's what this show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. He is a global trend watcher who shows people how to anticipate the future, manage risk, and spot opportunities. He is the author of the recently released Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, and Bubmazdology, Spotting Financial Bubbles Before They Burst. He has a PhD and two master's degrees from MIT, a bachelor's from Yale. In addition to having been a lecturer at Yale and currently lecturing at Harvard, Vikram advises Fortune 500 CEOs to help them navigate uncertainty. His ideas and writings have appeared in Bloomberg, Fortune, Forbes, and New York Times, among many others. And he also shares his ideas on his Think for Yourself podcast. And today we have the great fortune of having him here on the show. Welcome to the show, Vikram. John, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for writing this book. It could not be more timely in the world that we live in. And I want to start by asking you about that. You know, in your book, Think for Yourself, you talk about how we outsource our decision making. What are some of the symptoms that we need to look for to identify if we're outsourcing our thinking to someone or something else in some cases? Sure. So let's start with why we outsource, John, if you don't mind. Let me give a little context here. Um, I think it all boils down to the fact that we are drowning in information, something we all viscerally understand and feel, right? There's a data deluge. Uh, there's more information. We can't keep up. And then we know we're being asked to make choices in all walks of life. The result is that we feel because there are so many choices and so many options and so much data and so much information that we can make the perfect choice. Why couldn't we? The information's there. We have every option available under the sun. And so what do we do? We stop thinking. Sounds counterintuitive, but what we end up doing is we run headlong into the arms of experts and technologies for the explicit purpose of getting an optimal decision advice from them. So I don't know how to make the perfect choice, but you, Mr. PhD, specialist, MD, doctor, you probably know the best choice. So just tell me. Right. So we stop thinking. We outsource our thinking to those who know more about uh, the particular domain we're worried about than we do. And the ultimate reason I think this is problematic, and we can get into this if you want, is the decisions are taking place in a context that is broader than the silo of expertise from whom we're getting advice. And so we lose the context and all the things that matter to us as individuals when we turn to someone who's running around with expertise in a narrow silo. Well, that, that's really fascinating. And it goes back to your TEDx talk about foxy thinking. 
<laughs> I nice Vikram's pointing to his uh, picture in the back of of a fox, and 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 the fox has the the, the generalist knowledge, if I remember correctly, in, in that analogy, and it goes back to an ancient poem that you quoted in that. I highly recommend check out that uh, TED talk, yeah. and the the specialist versus the generalist that's kind of one of the major things that you focus on and i think what you're saying is that the problem with the specialists is that they're missing the forest for the trees they're not seeing the bigger scope and so we we're not making the best decisions as a result of that yeah look i mean there's a lot of value in being specialized there's a lot of value in expertise there's a lot of value in having depth right of knowledge um, I don't want to dismiss it. I'm not going to sit here and bash experts or specialists. Uh, but when it comes to navigating uncertainty or going through um, dynamics that may not have a sort of predetermined uh, path or we don't actually know even the range of possible outcomes, um, well, then I'm going to suggest it's better to be a generalist. That what we find, especially when facing a, a, a complex environment, a complex adaptive environment is that it's far more important to connect the dots than it is to generate the dots. Specialists and experts do a great job of generating the dots, but at times, particularly when navigating uncertainty, that it's, it becomes really important to connect the dots so that you get a mosaic of the world you're in and possible trajectories, possible scenarios, possible uh, outcomes at heart what I really am suggesting here is that every single perspective is limited. Every single perspective is biased and therefore every single perspective is incomplete. So instead of adopting one perspective, why not use multiple perspectives? And if being a generalist is not that. I don't know what a generalist is, right? A generalist is one who has an appreciation for multiple perspectives, uh, one who can empathize. This is, okay, maybe I understand economics. Uh, maybe I understand a little bit of politics. Maybe I understand a little bit of sociology. I can understand a little bit of demography. And I can sort of piece together a mosaic where I tap into the appropriate forms of expertise to help me build out each one of those dots, if you will, but the connecting of the dots in a unique way is a skill that I, as the generalist, need to bring. So it's a little bit of responsibility for owning the decision context and owning the sort of uh, domain in which you are navigating, as opposed to the narrow domain that the expert is providing advice on. The dots and the idea of data is the the generalist. Do they look for meaning, significance, and patterns versus just information, like the power of data versus actual intelligence? Yeah, it's it's interesting, John. I mean, back, geez, when was it? Almost twenty years ago, when I was working on my PhD, um, I the the nature of my research was focused on taking data and analyzing it to get information value, and then eventually insight that you can act on. And you're hinting at a very key distinction, which is data doesn't think. Data is their inputs, but the outputs are usually actions or some form of analysis that leads to a new insight. 
and there is a divide between data and what you do with data, and that interpretation of the data, et cetera, is really critical. Um, and so it's in that process of taking data, which is good. I'm not suggesting data is bad. Data is good. We want to use data to make decisions. But it's the interpretation and contextualization of that data that really provides the value to help. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that the data is something we don't want to dismiss, but at the same time, we also don't want to slavishly depend on it. You mentioned the fact that you know every perspective is limited, which goes to something you also reference in in your book with the gorilla video uh, based on um, the invis invisible gorilla. I believe it was the original book uh, based on the research, and, and his name escapes me such a great video and it was in the brain games video and i know you also mentioned working and, and interviewing apollo robbins and yes. and perception yes. and what was really interesting is you know because he uses that principle of the grill and that we don't see everything and distracting focus yeah. how do we know when we're missing the gorilla versus yep. seeing a useful enough amount of reality yep. if i could say it that yep. way yeah, so for, for your listeners that may not know much about the sort of gorilla problem, it's really a wonderful example, I think, of illustrating the, the sort of two-edged sword of focus, right? So we all think about focus as historically, and most of us, and sort of general connotation of focus is that it's a good thing, right? More focus is better, right? In fact, in, I'm looking at my computer, Microsoft Word has a focus setting, like it's to sort of turn out all the distractions. Focus is good. Who doesn't like focus? Except if you stop and think about what focus means, it means screening out. It means getting rid of what's happening outside of the area that you're focused upon. What it means, you can easily say deep focus is the same thing as broad ignoring. And when you say broad ignoring, wait, hold on, John, you don't like to broadly ignore. That, wait. I'm telling you the same thing, deeply focused, broadly ignore. It's the same dynamic. And so we, in one context, when it's framed for us as focus, we say, oh, that's great. We need to focus more. I need more focus. I need to, I'm too distracted. If I tell you, well, you're, you know, you're broadly ignoring, you say, well, that doesn't sound good either. I need to sort of not ignore as much as I do. Uh, so that's really the, uh, the, what they call inattentional uh, or selective uh, inattentional biases and, and sort of blindness. Um, so yeah, you can definitely, uh, find, find more information on that. Um, but it's, it's fascinating and, and exciting to me that you bring up Apollo. Apollo has turned into become an interesting person who I've gotten to know pretty well. He's a friend, uh, he and I have thought about collaboration on a couple of projects. We've got a couple of ideas we've been kicking around. Uh, but Apollo is a, by, by training, by background, almost a professional pickpocket, right? So what does he do? He plays in the shadows, You've got your spotlight of focus. You know what you're doing. He's playing in the shadows. He's probably one of the best students of focus in the world. And, you know, he was a professional pickpocket. They became an entertainer in Las Vegas. He's actually, he actually advised uh, Warner Brothers on the movie Focus. So he taught uh, Will Smith and, and Margot Robbie how to act like pickpockets. He taught them how to do it. Um, and so... Uh, if you get a chance, watch the movie Focus. I think it's fabulous because it illustrates a lot of these points. And know behind the scenes, it was really Apollo Robbins who was uh, teaching uh, some of those uh, tidbits. Um, but, but the point, I think, is really interesting that you're raising here. Focus 
and blindness and sort of where you focus and where you ignore and what you ignore are all really important things that many of us just stop thinking about. We just, it just happens in the background, right? Imagine you're walking out of an airport in a foreign country, John, you come out of the airport and it's, there's a big sign there that says, warning, pickpockets in the area. So what are you going to do? First thing, you're going to grab your chest, make sure your chest pocket of your jacket, say, okay, I got my wallet. You're going to touch and say, okay, here's my passport. You're going to say, all right, double look in your, open your, pull out your money clip and say, okay, I got my money, everything. I'm okay. That's one way to think about it. You've now focused on what you need. However, if you were to take another perspective, you'd say, well, if I was a pickpocket, damn, that's a pretty good spot to be at. I could sit there and John's going to come out. He's going to just give me a map of where everything of value is. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, this is awesome. Right? And so you turn around and you're like, well, hold on a sec. We focus on ourselves missing the context in which things are happening. Likewise, if you actually try to adopt a different perspective, i.e. scatter your brain, zoom out. There are a lot of ways I describe this. There may be value there in sort of seeing a different role, a different perspective, and maybe ignoring is not the right thing. Maybe focus isn't always good. So many mic drop moments there on shifting paradigms, what you just said. So thank you, first of all, on the, really the two sides of the coin of focus and in deletion and really ignoring it was a broad like so deep focus and broad deletion or broad um ignorance in that manner when when you're trying to gain focus to work on a project writing or, or doing something do you intend to focus on something or do you actually take a moment and step back and figure out what you want to not pay attention to is that something that comes into your awareness yeah so look how everyone works it's, i think that's a very individualistic thing and different times of day different ways etc so i do find myself needing to work at times where the distraction risk is lower right look i've got a couple of kids i've got an office with some people that work with me and others and so i find you know it's it's hard for me to write during the middle of an afternoon for instance whereas early morning i find it easier to write i find it easier to write in the evenings i find it easier to write when there's less distraction possibilities and part of the reason for that is I don't view the distractions as distractions. I view the distractions as potential insight. Um, and so I don't dismiss anomalies. I sort of explore anomalies, et cetera. And so that's a different paradigm of thinking. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I think uh, I do focus, uh, but there are times to focus and there's times not to. There's domains in which focus is useful. And, you know, we like to think of it as, binary you're either a specialist or a generalist either you're narrowly focused or you're not there are gradations and there's a time element i can be really focused on something now and then zoom out on a personal level and sort of see the context in which decisions are happening but i can be a phd scientist exploring a piece of research very narrowly and deeply here and then i zoom back out so it's a there are gradations it's not a binary either or and b there are times uh, it's a dynamic also. It's not just you're out, you're one thing and you stay that. You migrate, you in, out, up, down over time. So, so behind that is, is intention, it sounds like. In that moment, what is required? And being willing for you, especially being more generalist focused, to embrace those anomalies and, and figure out what insights are available there when they pop up as well. Yeah, you use the word intention. I use the word mindful. Yes, mindful. same thing. 
Yes. Perfect. I mean, in fact, there's a chapter in the book called Mindfully Manage Focus. First chapter of what do we do here in this situation? And you know, that's the chapter I think where I have Apollo Robbins in there. But it's uh, uh, the key is to be mindful, to think for yourself by actually, sounds crazy, very meta, uh, but focus on where you focus, right? I mean, actually take a step back, zoom out and say, what is it I want to focus on and what am I ignoring by doing so? And just be intentional or mindful of it. I'm not saying it's bad to, to focus. I'm just saying if you let people focus you without being aware of it, well, then you're getting taken for a ride and maybe it's a good ride, maybe it's a bad ride, but you're not in control. You put yourself on autopilot. Somebody else is choosing a destination. Well, with Apollo Robbins, of course, and you mentioned he's potentially the greatest student ever on on focus. What are some of the more powerful things he shared about managing other people's focus? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, um, so again, if anyone doesn't know Apollo, and my guess is there's a lot of people who don't know him, uh, he was really drawn to fame and sort of made very publicly uh, uh, accomplished because he was, I think it was at Caesars Entertainment. I forget which Las Vegas venue he was at doing a sh magic show and he was told that well actually you know jimmy carter's going to be in the audience and so just so you know former president he's just be aware and he said oh great so he goes out and he finds the secret service detail and while he's with the secret service detail uh he's just making conversation and what he does is uh in fact there's a part of my book where i talk about it he literally uh takes out a copy of jimmy carter's itinerary from one of their pockets he pulls the keys to the motorcade out and he gets like badges <laughs> of these agents and stuff like that. And he starts offering them back to him. And they're all like, what are you, you can't have, you're not authorized, etc." cetera. Um, but anyway, that's just a fun tidbit. The reason I bring that up is oftentimes it's the most audacious sort of attempts uh, where people are not expecting things that focus management becomes really interesting and really something you can do. So it's actually, and I think, uh, I think Apollo is the one who told me this. It might've been someone else. It's actually easier to pickpocket someone when they're worried about being pickpocketed. Why no is way. That? Yeah. Why is it, that? Yeah. But it is. Well, so here, here's the thing. So it turns out, think of focus as being something we have a set amount of, right? You got a set amount of focus and you, I pull you up on stage. I mean, I couldn't do this, John, but Apollo couldn't, <laughs> right? Pull you up on stage in front of 40 people, 100 people, 500 people, corporate event, big venue, doesn't matter. I pull you up on stage and um, I'm telling you, all right, you know, you know, I'm a professional pickpocket. You're on high alert and you're paying close attention right here to, your, you know, where your wallet is on your inside chest pocket of your blazer. You've got it. You're watching it. You're, you're like intensely focused here. As a result, Apollo could touch your shoulder, your intention, your focus, everything is on your shoulder pocket area during which time he takes your watch off because you've mischanneled your energy towards where the stimulus has been, either in the form of a touch or your mental energy, et cetera. And so you've ignored. So the gorilla is he's going after your watch. Uh, you're watching the balls bounce here in your pocket and your shoulder. And so think of focus as being something that we have a set amount over and where you allocate it becomes important. And in this case, 
if you overly allocate in an area where you think you're focused on the right topic, you're broadly ignoring other areas that may be just as important. And so that creates the shadow for professionals like Apollo to jump in the shadows and act there. So that's another data point leaning towards the generalist versus the specialist, because when you're so blinded, then you miss the other other data points that could be changing the entire narrative of what you're talking about. That's right. That's right. Think about, I mean, look, there's storied examples here. Uh, Steve Ballmer suggesting there'd be no market for the iPhone, right? Okay. Right. Or even McKinsey saying, you know, not, the market for cell phones will be limited. Or, you know, IBM and uh, there were some computer executives that said, you know, there'll be a market for like five personal computers or some small number back in the 50s. Um, you know, what happens is when you're focused on one area, you fail to realize possibilities outside it. You know, Irving Fisher back in 1929 said the stock market reached a permanently high plateau. Well, it turns out it went ahead and plunged <laughs> a ton, right? Shortly after he said that. Um, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for this recency bias. People that end up focusing too much on their area tend not to look broadly at areas that can be coming from adjacent domains or adjacent uh, developments that can affect what they're predicting. And here, uh, the, the scholar who I think is really worthy of reading up on and, and, and has done some brilliant research that I'm very fond of um, is uh, Philip Tetlock. Uh, Philip Tetlock, uh, he's written several books, my favorite of which is Expert Political Judgment. Um, where he's, you know, over 20 years, he analyzes something like hundreds of thousands of predictions to come to the conclusion that people are more accurate in predicting, uh, you know, sorry, non-experts are more accurate predictors than experts in a specific domain. So if your area's expertise is, I don't know, economic growth forecasting, turns out non-economic uh, actors that were, that's not their focus, are better at predicting economic growth than you are. Wow. And wow. it's sort of like a very disturbing development in so many levels. Um, and in fact, the research is, is gigantic. I mean, he's done some brilliant work uh, over long periods of time. I mean, that study had 284 professional forecasters, and I think he had data on over 80,000 actual predictions and forecasts. Incredible. And concluded that and the conclusion was, I mean, literally, the conclusion was it's more realistic to turn to non-experts than experts. Um, and that has to do with the focus and sort of seeing things that may come in to affect you and not affect you. Because as the amateur, I'm not as biased on my own theories and, the, and I'm not putting weight on my own ideas about what's supposed to happen. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Think okay. of a generalist. I don't know what I don't know. I, you literally, as a generalist, I try to pride myself on this, which is, I, I think of myself as a generalist. And that means when I walk into a room, I know there are people who know more than I do about everything. I'm not the, I'm not the final word on anything. And so what do I do? I listen. I'm open-minded. I'm aware that someone knows more than I, whereas, you know, John, if I throw you on stage and say, you're the leadership expert, you're the best person in the world, you're the leadership person, you've written books on leadership, you are you've done studies on leadership. Um, now you enter this corporate boardroom and, you know, CEO is like, well, what am I supposed to do? And you believe everything you say, I'm not saying it's wrong, but there could be someone who's not a leadership expert who's like, um, is there a chance actually the context matters more than the person's activity? Is it possible that like, a 
huge financial crisis will derail all of your leadership plans? Or is it possible that a global pandemic, like, you know, that's not going to enter your world of thinking because you can, you know, you're focused on what you do and you've been given all these, you know, accolades for how well you do it and you get all this prestige and you actually start to believe yourself and not wrongfully, but, you know, at the expense of seeing other possibilities. Kind of wrongfully in, the, in that particular context, right? Because we're limiting ourselves. Yeah, well, not not wrongfully, but incompletely, I think is the way I would say it, right? In Great word. Yeah, it's not wrong uh, because you want people doing that, but you need to compliment people like that with people who think the outside view. So, you know, all of my consulting and advisory practice, uh, all the work I do, uh, in fact, in, the, in Think for Yourself, there's a section where I've worked with United Technologies and their merger with Raytheon, but, you know, I get hired by boards and their CEOs to come in and play that role because they all know that they're, it's impossible for them not to think what they think, right? They're in their world. They're seeing the world through their own eyes. It's impossible to bring an outsider's perspective when you are, in fact, an insider. Like, it's, you've got history. It's, it's structurally. It's not that I'm smarter. It's not that I'm better. It's not that, it's just I'm not in that day-to-day -day trench battle that they are fighting their business um, decisions. I get to sit back and look broadly and come back and say, hey, ask the naive questions that result in questioning assumptions that may lead them to insights that could be helpful. So I think there's a huge role for outside thinking partners, uh, especially for leaders that are very mindful about the risks to their own framing and the data they receive and sort of how it gets filtered before it reaches them to have a independent external thinking partner um, that they trust is big picture, broader, wider for them to just bounce ideas off of and to get new input from. Um, so that's a role I've played in several boards and C-suites, and it's a, it's a fun one, actually. I enjoy it. Can you talk a little bit about meta-knowledge and how it relates to successful leaders? Yeah. So um, it's funny. We talked about meta-focus. Now we talk about meta-knowledge. Very meta. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, meta-knowledge, knowledge about your knowledge is critical. Um in fact, uh, in my first book, Boom Bustology, I, I have actually a meta-knowledge test that you know readers can take to gauge how much they know about how much they know. Um, and the reason this is important is oftentimes we know what we know. That's fine. We sometimes are aware of things that are out there that we just don't know about. You know, you know there's complex physics and launching a satellite and okay, great. I don't know those physics. I know I don't know those physics and that math and et cetera, but I know it exists, but I just don't know it, right? Then there's a whole domain of things I don't know I don't know, right? That's where it gets pernicious and it gets really problematic. I mean, Donald Rumsfeld's famous for his unknown unknowns, right? Uh, and his known, known, known unknowns and unknown knowns. And, you know, he goes through these, the, the matrix and thinks about them that way. Uh, but really what I think is quite interesting and worthy of, of, of spending more time for all of us to think about is understanding what we don't know. Um, and spending more time thinking about what we don't know we don't know, if that makes sense. I realize that once we figure that out, then we know we don't know it. But <laughs> um, what I'm trying to do is expand the horizon. So one way this comes into play 
is if you don't have an appreciation for what you don't know, then it ends up manifesting itself very directly in all the psychology research as overconfidence. And overconfidence ties very nicely to hubris, which correlates with closed-mindedness and the inability to navigate uncertainty because you're on, you're not open to seeing different scenarios or possibilities. So there's a link, it gets weaker with every stage, but there is a link between not appreciating what you don't know and your inability to navigate uncertainty. With uncertainty, of course, there's going to be a huge piece of that pie that we don't know what's going to happen. And so would you say the first step then is to acknowledge that and and then seek extra data points to bring in a, a bigger, better picture of what's going on? Yeah, look, when it's uncertain, you don't, yeah, a great example. I've done this in tons of corporate environments, John. Um, people tend to come up with forecasts, right? All right? What are your sales going to be next year? Well, I've got this, this spreadsheet. I've got the sales pipeline. It pops out. And so um, my midpoint, uh, my I think I'm going to do a 10% larger number in revenue. So I'll do $1.7 million of revenue as my sales quota next year. Great. That's just 1.7. We don't know. How about we say one five to one nine? Is that possible? Can we do a range instead of a point estimate? When you get a point estimate, you get all sorts of anchoring biases that come into play, people insufficiently adjust. When you force them to put a range, now you can have a conversation about the uncertainty. What's gonna drive it towards the higher end? What's gonna drive it towards the lower end? What don't we know, right? So that's one thing. The other thing I encourage folks to do is, is don't get anchored on a point estimate. Think in terms of ranges. But another thing I uh, tell a lot of leaders to do is uh, read fiction. And you can say, what? Yeah, yeah, I want people to read fiction. Uh, wait, hold on, I'm too busy. I've got to read the latest business book. I have this book on data analytics I got to learn. I've got this quarterly strategy update coming up. I want to understand this consultant's thinking. I'm meeting this person as a potential board candidate. They wrote a book. I got to read their book. I don't have time to read fiction. Well, I want to suggest to you that fiction is actually what helps broaden the mind, actually helps you widen your horizon of possibility, actually gets you thinking differently, actually helps you even in domains that you're not thinking about um, in, in the course of reading that fiction, helps you think about things in your domain of interest. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting work on fiction and how it could be helpful to enhancing creativity, uh, awareness, empathy, all the sorts of things that are useful for navigating uncertainty. So I've become a big believer uh, that, that reading fiction and different scenarios is useful. And by the way, that, that applies then to watching movies. If I'm in a rut of thinking or I feel like I'm not coming up with interesting enough scenarios, I will occasionally, and I don't apologize for it, uh, especially since I work for myself, I don't have to, <laughs> uh, but I'll occasionally just go watch a movie in the middle of the day. Well, I'm, I'm just in a rut. I can't get there. Fine. Yeah, I'm going to go back and turn on a movie about some fantastic scenario. Um, you know, great. That's okay. So one one central theme that, that seems to come up a little bit when we're becoming aware of our own biases, what we know, what we don't know, acknowledging that, becoming meta on our thoughts is really self-awareness. Like going back to the word you said before, which is mindful. So if we're as a leader in that space of being mindful and being open, not having hubris, not getting focused on how much, how great I am and how much I know, how do we create a culture where people are okay in in challenging assumptions and looking at different perspectives rather than uh, being fearful of being wrong 
failure has to be seen as positive, not negative. Right. So that's the first thing I say is you celebrate failure rather than 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 sort of castigate those who have failed. Um, so failure is really critical because that's where the opportunity for learning takes place. Um, in fact, uh, one of the suggestions I made, John, is that, you know, when planning for success, focus on failure is something I've written here. Um, and the reason I say that is um a lot of us can make a scenario of, hey, we as a team are gonna make this decision. I want my boss to know I'm making this decision. This is the direction and this is my scenario. And that's the plan and this is where I think we're gonna get. Fine, maybe you get there, maybe you don't. But to acknowledge the uncertainty and to take the value of learning from failure before you actually fail, there's something called a pre-mortem analysis. Uh, it's speculative hindsight. So what you do, or perspective hindsight, excuse me, you put yourself in the future five years forward and you look back to the present and you say, oh, John made this decision for us to go in that direction. God, that was a horrible decision. Why? Let's think about why we failed with that decision. What happened? Oh, a global recession hit, sales plunged, or you know what? Three of our key team members left. We were so overly dependent there. Uh, there was technological disruption in the business from a different angle. Um, turns out government regulation changed or there was a, a new uh, trade flow pattern that resulted in a competitive threat we hadn't thought about. All of these dynamics could have made John's great decision today fail five years from now. So let's just do that with every decision we're thinking about. Let's imagine ourselves five years forward and how we failed. I think doing it that way takes the pressure off us as a team saying with you, John, in the conversation and I as the leader sort of saying, oh, I'm trying to encourage a thought process that's more open-minded, more willing to think about failure. If we make it personal about you, eh, that's sort of, that doesn't feel right. It's sort of, you're going to be less likely to step forward with ideas in the future. But if instead we say, you know, this is just part of our process. We just always evaluate five years forward. This has failed. Why? That's something we do for every possible decision we're going to put on the table. And we as a team have decided a leader who sets up that framework, that context, is more likely to feel like they get better idea flow. Alternatively, one other thing I've done with, uh, with, with group decision making, which is a different domain, and we can get into the complexities there if you want to. Um, but when you go into the domain of groups, uh, sometimes having a structural devil's advocate is actually really important. It's because, you know, it's not personal, John. But my job is to tell you why your idea is horrible. It's not going to work. Here's why. It's not personal. If it's not a structural person whose job it is to always say no, well, now we got conflict. I and mean, Jesus, what the hell is Vikram always gunning for my ideas for? You know, that Vikram guy is really a pain. I don't like him. He's always shooting down my ideas. And then you see you get counterproductive dynamics and the social sense of management. Um, but a leader who sort of encourages a context where failure can be openly discussed and is not deemed personal or offensive to individuals, um, but is instead discussed in the sort of context of seeking better outcomes for all, well, that's a healthy development, I think. I think so, too. I think there's sometimes an overemphasis on focus on the positive that can happen, especially in the personal growth and development industry. But you're saying looking at it realistically, let's either create a role or create it as part of the structure of our decision making so that we all encompass that role while we're making those decisions. That, that's a very powerful one. John, it's also true on the personal development side, too. Right. 
I mean, so you're going to make a career move. Someone's thinking about a career move. Oh, you know what? I'm currently a manager in this department. I think I have an opportunity to become a vice president at that company in the same department doing this. Is that a good thing or bad thing? Let's do the same process. Five years forward, horrible decision. Why? Well, the company you went to went out of business and you were seen as the person that led to their failure because you were in that vertical, which had problems to begin with. There was a lawsuit. There was regular. You can do the same thing and see how it affects you in your career. So really jumping, you're doing lateral thinking, you're doing retroactive thinking, you're doing proactive thinking, being present at the moment at the same time and managing what you focus on and what you don't pay attention to. Like, but, but e so either we're doing that, either we're being mindful as you, is really what we're saying, or you're outsourcing your thinking. And if you really want to, let's go back to that, that first question. What are some of the symptoms when we're not doing those things that, that causes people harm? Yeah. Well, let me, let me begin by saying, I don't think outsourcing is always bad. As you hinted at, it's hard work to think for yourself. It's not easy. It takes effort. It's mindful. It's energized. It uses energy. It's just, you know, it's, it's a process. It's not something that just happens. And so that can be really taxing if you have to think for yourself on every decision that takes place in life. There's a story in the book about my wife and I trying to choose a movie, right? Between Netflix, Hulu, Comcast, Xfinity, all these things. We probably have a million on-demand movies on our finger, Apple TV. I mean, probably no joke to say it's a million plus movies on on-demand available to us instantaneously. I mean, something like that. Surely, surely there is a perfect movie for my mood, for her mood, for the humidity level, for the temperature, <laughs> for the lighting, for the dogs barking or not barking persona, like whatever it is, there's a perfect movie for that. How the hell am I going to find that? Pardon my language. That's a search for, like for me to, you want me to go to Rotten Tomatoes? You want me to go to the internet movie database? You want me to screen based on actors? You want me to screen based on emotional uh, outcome of people who have followed? Look at are you kidding me? I just want to watch a movie. You know what? I'm going to outsource my thinking to the Netflix recommendation. That's okay. It's low cost. It's an hour and 45 minutes. It's on the couch. There's low stakes. If I don't like it, it's fine. Next time I go find something else. All right, whatever. Low stakes decision. Now, now instead you've got a major medical issue that's been presented to you. Um, you've got a couple courses of action some of which come with really high risks, but offer really nice rewards uh, of elimination of potential issues. Um, others, you live with a nascent risk that may be there for a while and produces an anxiety for the you, your family, et cetera. Um, I, here's an example where I don't need you putting yourself on autopilot. Here are the example you need to engage. The stakes are high enough. You, it's important enough. Yes, you're gonna talk to your doctor, but you might actually go get uh, a second uh, first opinion, as I refer to it. I don't call them second opinions because oftentimes a second opinion is you take your existing file and you go see another doctor. And that next doctor reads the first file and says, oh yeah, that makes sense, great, I agree. I'm not gonna disagree with my esteemed colleague down the street. Instead, you go find a true second opinion, a, a second first opinion is what I describe it as. Because um, you want independent of thinking, not you know connected thinking. In that case, you really do want to connect the dots, think for yourself, 
explore adjacent uh, domains. Okay, you're going to potentially take this, uh, have this procedure, take some medication for your heart. What does it do to your risk of diabetes? What does it do to your sort of other conditions that you may have? Are there other sort of interconnections that are worthy of thinking about? Um, and so, you know, there's a situation where the default may in fact be to just that doctor knows best, let me blindly follow. And I wanna say, you can do so. Make sure you're doing so, acknowledging that you're doing so. Okay, this is too high stress. I can't keep up with it. I don't wanna try even. So I'm just gonna let this doctor take over. In my book, there's an example where uh, a Stanford University professor, Baba Shiv, uh, he and his wife had a cancer diagnosis and they proactively decided to take the back seat, to get out of the driver's seat of the decision-making process. They said it was too emotional, too difficult, too hard. We knew it. And so um, they proactively, mindfully, and that's why I'm okay with it, mindfully said, you know what? We know we could get engaged. We know we could ask the pros and cons. We know we could see where and how else this might matter. But this is too emotional. We're just going to find the right person to outsource our thinking to. And they did it that way. He's actually got a TED talk on the topic. I haven't checked that out. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, I think it's when it's okay to give up the driver's seat or, or something like that. So the reason people, because you said when the stakes are high, it makes more sense to make that decision for yourself because it's not right or wrong to take the driver's seat or give up the driver's seat, but you have to be mindful. And what we have is probably a default right now with the overwhelm that we have to outsource. And we just need to make that decision for ourselves. That's right. Yeah. In fact, I found the link here. It, it's uh, it's a TED talk by Baba Shiv. It's entitled, Sometimes It's Good to Give Up the Driver's Seat. Uh, it's a short talk, which the Stanford University professor describes how he and his wife handled a cancer diagnosis by consciously giving up control of their decisions to a doctor. It's about deliberate, deliberate intentionality in that process. You know, I know that you spend a lot of your time, you know, at conferences and doing public speaking and consulting, and you've had to meet an incredible number of people. And, and many of them, those interviews are in your book. And one that really caught my attention was was Bob Woodward, who, and not to go into political discussion, but you actually invited him to come and, and join you in, in one of your classes. What, what were some of the insights that you were hoping your students would walk away with with a conversation with Bob Woodward. Yeah, no, that was just a really fun. So I've gotten to know Bob and his family pretty well. Um, uh, just sheer dumb luck, not planned, but I was giving a speech down in uh, Chile, um, uh, in Santiago, and I had a couple of days between events. And so I ended up flying up to uh, the Atacama Desert to take a couple of days of, of just you know, off the grid, relaxing. And um, turns out Bob and I were sharing the same speaker manager for, for some years. Um, and he says, you know, Bob's up there. And I'd known Bob because he'd come to my class and I've spent time having lunch with him at his house in Washington. And uh, so there was Bob and his wife and his daughter uh, right there in the middle of the desert of Chile where he and I got to spend some time together for a couple of days. But anyway, um, what did I want Bob to teach my students? Um, empathy empathy at the highest levels and the fact that no one is above questions, uh, that you can ask questions of anyone and everyone and you should. Uh, so it was in the context of a business ethics class that I was teaching at Yale to undergraduates as well as business school students. Um, and one of the key things that I wanted everyone to do was say, look, we all have a responsibility to call out wrongdoing when and if we see it. 
And so the, the way I set up the class is I had them read um, uh, Woodward and Bernstein's papers. Then I had them read the Panama papers that had just come out at the time of the class. And I had them read the work of other investigative journalists. And the idea was investigative journalists are really great at calling out wrongdoing by researching because it's not obvious and they do some work, they connect dots and they present a story to the world. Um, and so um, I had them come to class prepared I did not tell them in advance that Bob Woodward would be coming. I said, Bob, let's just have breakfast. We'll walk over to class. Did it. I bring in my friend, Bob, who happens to be in town and just wants to, to, to listen. And so we're going around the room. We're talking to the students about different forms of uh, asking questions, the work of investigative journalists. And, and, you know, a couple of them were like, well, you know, it's kind of like naive to think you could call out a president. It's sort of tough to be able to do that. And, um, and Bob couldn't help himself. He's like, well, actually, you know, when I called out Nixon and next thing you know, they're like, what, wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> is this Bob Woodward? Like, are you kidding me? Like, yes. And they all connected the dots quickly and figured it out. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a great session. Uh, but no, he's a living example of, you know, realizing that uh, dot connecting is a critical exercise. Uh, the way you get really interesting connections to dots is by treating people as seriously as they think of themselves. And, you know, he's given a tremendous amount of respect to every president he's ever interviewed. His preparation for those interviews is probably as intense as my PhD work was. <laughs> um, in fact, he was able, it gave me a portion of his transcript and his prep for, um, for his interview with Obama. And at the end of his interview with Obama, Obama asked uh, Bob uh, if he wanted to be head of the CIA or whether he's ever thought about being in the CIA. Uh, he said, because your sources are better than mine. Uh, <laughs> and part of it is Bob is just remarkably diligent remarkable. I mean, we like to think there's there's profound insight, and there is. He does a good job of connecting dots, but he's also doing the blocking and tackling in a way that is thorough, comprehensive, thoughtful. Um, you know, it's been a real joy and pleasure in my life to be able to have spent so much time talking to him and getting to know him a little bit. So, yeah, that's fantastic. So sounds like a great reveal for the students as well. That's amazing. Yeah, they had fun with it. They had fun. With it. Yeah, it was fun, fun class. You know, I, I think, you know, part of my hypothesis is that conversations are a huge aspect of leadership, communication, and even to ourselves with thinking in relation to what we're talking about now. Can, can you recall a conversation that you would point to that may have had you know, a significant impact on your direction and ultimate destination in your career or personally? Yeah. So it's fast. It's a great question. Um, John, thanks for asking. Um, you know, so I was very, I've always had a contrarian instinct to me. I, you know, people are going right, I want to go left. People are going up, I want to go down. People say finance, I say, let's go management. People say management, I say, let's go policy. People say policy, let's say, let's go education, whatever it is. Like I'm, they're zigging, I want to zag. That's my instinct. Um, and so back in the early 90s, when I was in college as an undergrad, everyone wanted to study Japan. Japan was going to overtake the world. It's fabulous. It's going to be the rising superpower that just did it. And so I said, well, you know, I'm kind of interested by East Asia. I want to learn to study East Asian studies. But if everyone's studying Japan, I'm going to study China. And so I was an East Asian studies major. 
Um, I worked for a U.S. ambassador, Jim Lilly, uh, down at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, as an intern. Uh, I went over to China, traveled the country and, you know, learned the language pretty thoroughly at the time, worked at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. And I thought I was going to come out. And then I said, you know what, I got my Chinese isn't great. I want to spend a couple of years really learning Chinese intensely. Um, and here's the answer to your question. I had a conversation with Ambassador Lilly, and he's since passed away, unfortunately, but he's been, he was a real mentor of mine. And he said, Vikram, you can compete on a lot of things. The language is not one of them. <laughs> You're not, he said, look, you can spend the time on that and maybe it proves useful and valuable to you, but better instead to connect dots where language is not the key skill set. So focus on where you can bring something of interest, value, and differentiation rather than competing on something that you know you will, even if you're best at it, you do an amazing job at it, that the best you're gonna be is the same as others. He's like, that doesn't seem like a good battle to fight and energy to deploy in that way. Um, but he said, look, you spend time thinking about China, study the politics, study the history, connect the dots, look at the economics, look at the culture, look at the international relations, look at their philosophy, connect dots in ways that could be helpful. That would be interesting. Spending years studying the language so that you can speak as well as a native. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the best use of your time and energy. So, you know, that was helpful to me. And I think that conversation did redirect me in ways that, you know, I don't know that that's the, the extent of the influence. I think it's been broader and wider. And I tend not to, you know, if you're going to put in the effort, you know, so to say, if, you, if you're going to do it, make sure that the squeeze is worth the juice that comes out, so to say. Well said. Yeah. Dr. Vikram, thank you so much for spending time with us. What's the best way for people to connect with you, to you know, buy your book and, and to stay in connected with, and in conversation with you? Yeah, John, thanks for asking. Uh, so my website's a great resource. It's www.manshuramani.com. Uh, that's M-A-N-S-H-A-R-A-M-A-N-I. Or uh, LinkedIn, actually, you know, I've written, I think, geez, I think I've posted at this point 115 or 120 of the articles I've written about various topics around global affairs, decision-making, et cetera. They're all posted for free on my LinkedIn profile. So you can go there. LinkedIn's a great way. And then I'm also on Twitter. Uh, it's just my last name is my Twitter handle. Fantastic. I'll put all those links in the show notes. Thank you again so much for being here on the show. John, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. For more tools to engage, inspire, and empower yourself and others, visit keyconvo.com free. If you haven't already, you can connect with me on Twitter at keyconvo and on LinkedIn under John Ryan Leadership.